CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. On the line with us is our old buddy, Medea Benjamin, activist, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange, uh, author of multiple books, her, her latest, Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection, codepink.org, of course, the website, and globalexchange.org. And you can tweet her at Medea Benjamin. Medea, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. So you were just in Bolivia, and you know we've been hearing these bizarre stories about what's going on there that... Evo Morales, the first indigenous president of, I believe, any country in this hemisphere, was elected years ago. He's been very, very progressive, and basically the billionaires hate him. And, and the story that I've been reading is that this was a right-wing coup funded by the very wealthiest people in Bolivia that evicted him from the country. Is that what you saw when you were there? Absolutely. I don't know how it was reported in the mainstream press because I was there but what you saw was a premeditated attempt to reverse just about all of the gains that had been made by the Evo Morales 13 years in the presidency that had brought up the economic situation of millions of people and brought the voice and the power of the indigenous community into not only the presidential palace, but into the National Assembly and all over the country. And his time in office was really seen as a huge benefit, not only to the indigenous community in Bolivia, but all over Latin America. So it was sort of like as if right after FDR got out of office, Ronald Reagan came in and just started reversing everything, doing away with social security and unionization and that kind of stuff. I mean, is that what has happened? This, the new government is literally undoing social welfare programs? No, not yet, Tom. That is not happened. But what the new government has done was first come in with very racist people who have a history of disrespecting indigenous communities and cultures, mm. giving a green light for a lot of that racism, including the burning of the indigenous flag, the Wipala, and then the giving a green light to the military and the police to use force to, quote, pacify the country, which led to two massacres, one near Cochabamba and the other outside of La Paz. 
And then it also meant that this new government that was only supposed to set the stage for a transition to new elections actually changed the entire cabinet, changed the international relationships to cut off ties with Venezuela, kick out over 700 Cuban doctors who were providing the only health care in the poorest rural areas, established good ties with the right-wing governments of Bolsonaro in Brazil and Duque in Colombia, and then also cement ties with the U.S. Trump administration. And there are other examples of what they are doing that goes far beyond the setting of the uh, foundations for new elections. But so far, they haven't touched the social welfare programs. Did our government or any of our oligarchs, our billionaires here in the United States, play any role in this coup in Bolivia? And would you call it a coup? We had the foreign minister, a former foreign minister of uh, Ecuador on the program uh, the week that it happened, this is a couple of weeks ago, and he said, this is a coup. I, there's no other word to describe it. Is that, is that consistent with your observations? Well, absolutely, because if you look at the way it happened, when Evo Morales was told by the Organization of American States that there were irregularities in the elections, he said, all right, let's call for new elections. But the opposition would hear none of that and said, no, we want him out. And forced him out through very terrorist kind of tactics. His sister's home was burned down. A number of the leaders of his party were kidnapped, threatened. We also met with the union leader, for example, whose wife and daughter had been kidnapped. So this kind of fear that spread quickly throughout the leadership of Evo Morales and his allies was uh, the reason that he left the country to avoid more bloodshed and save the lives of people in his party. And another element of all of this is that they bribed the military and the police with money and had them turn against Evo Morales and turn on the people. So when the military tells a leader that he should leave the country and then takes over with an unelected government, uh, the new president, her party, only got 4% of the vote, and her position was supposed to be approved by the Congress, but it never was. I hmm. think you could call that a coup, Tom. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. How do you see this thing playing out, Medea? Well, now it seems that the international community has come back quickly and said that this is too much, and the new government realized that it was not going to be able to rule by force because the indigenous community was fighting back hmm. very fiercely. So there have been some compromises. She has sent the military back to their barracks. There are some of the arrested leaders who have been let go. The legislation has been passed for new elections within the next three months. It will not allow Evo Morales to run but certainly the Moss Party can put somebody forward. Mm -hmm. And already the right-wing coup leader, Luis Camacho, has announced that he's running. Evo Morales' number one rival, Carlos Mesa, said that he is going to run. But the question is, will there be the conditions for free and fair elections if this racist, 
supremacist, European-descendant group is in power, will they let Moss contest the elections in an open, transparent way? And if Moss wins them, will they allow them to take over? Those are some key questions. Moss being the party of uh, Evo Morales, the progressive party. Yes, that's right. Yeah. The movement towards socialism, his party. Yeah, essentially. Wow. I mean, we see a certain amount of this in the, here in the United States where Republican, well, Brian Kemp did it in Georgia, you know, throw a quarter million people off the voting rolls and then win the election by 50,000 votes. And, you know, Stacey Abrams is doing a great job of documenting that. He's preparing to do it again. If they do voter suppression in Bolivia, will it be that subtle or will it be? I mean, also, Kemp also shut down polling places in black neighborhoods, which is another strategy that Republican governors use all across the United States. How, if they're if they're disenfranchising Bolivian voters, how would they do it? Well, I don't know, Tom. I think that one of the key things is going to be are the conditions uh, there where people uh, will not fear going out to vote. Because mm. in some of these rural communities, they have beaten up the mayors. They have tied up some of the heads of community radio stations. And that's an important thing to talk about, Tom. We haven't talked about the role of the media. Mm -hmm. And it is just remarkable to see how quickly, literally in the course of a week, how this coup government took over the state-run TV, canceled, took off the air, community-run radio stations, took over the print media, and it turned into a real propaganda press. And wow. so what people have been hearing is that these massacres were not done by the military. They were just clashes between these violent protesters. And they talk about Evo and his party, Moss, as being narco-traffickers. They um, have really rewritten the history of the last 14 years, and they are only giving the side of the coup leaders. So can you call that free and fair elections? Yeah. So there's that issue. There's the, there's the fear factor. Uh, who knows? Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. Medea, thank you so much. Medea Benjamin with uh, CodePink.org. Uh, Medea, thanks so much for dropping by today and sharing your observations with us from your, your actual being on the ground and on your trip down there. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Tom. Great talking with you. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Esther Forbes's book, Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. It was actually sent to me in 2010. It's a remarkable book. You'll recall I've talked about how every time our country reboots, it goes through a major transformation. It's the result of, or it follows an economic crash. Every time we do a positive transformation, and, you know, we've talked about the crash of 1837, the crash of 1856, the crash of 1889, the crash of 1929, all of which provoked very positive changes. I suppose you could argue the Civil War wasn't a positive change, but this is what provoked the Revolutionary War. This is from page 98 of Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. January 15, 1765, the trade, Merchant Row noted, has been much alarmed this day. Mr. Wheelwright stopped payment and kept his room. A great number of people will suffer by him. 
Nat Wheelwright was the first of many merchants to collapse that spring. During the war, merchants had increased their stock and speculated. Farmers had enlarged their farm. Those boom years were over. The Depression was begun, and in Boston, it lasted 20 years. January 19, 1765. Very bad accounts. Dr. John Scholle shut up. Dr. John Denny shut up, and Peter Bourne of the North End. By shut up, they mean close their businesses. Am unlikely to be a large sufferer by Scole. Now Mr. Rowe is really apprehensive. He is a cautious gentleman, no longer young. Even the walking was dangerous that day. Extreme bad and slippery. This is his diaries she's reading from. Next day was Sabbath. Mr. and Mrs. Rowe never missed his services at Trinity, but did not go to church. My mind too much disturbed. Just as he should have been starting, his dear friend Joseph Scott had come up to see him very disturbed. Sure enough, next day, Mr. Scott had also shut down his business, and William Haskin and the company had been shut down as well. A bank failed for 170,000 British pounds. Mr. Savage fell in a fatal apocalyptic fit in his lawyer's office. Captain Forbes shut up his shop today, and much grieved for him, wrote one of the diaries. The merchants were going down like a house of playing cards. Each big house, such as Mr. Rowe mentions, carried innumerable small ones with it. Shipwrights, sailors, and sailmakers might suffer first, but tailors and peruki makers, button molders or soap boilers, silversmiths or braziers all followed. Rents and mortgages could not be paid. The clergy began to find more copper and less silver in the alms basin. Farmers drove mutton to town, could get no decent price, and angrily drove them home again. Only one-fifth of the usual numbers of ships cleared that water from Boston for the West Indies. Not only was the artificial wartime prosperity over, but the merchants could not pay the duties now demanded of them. They experimented in short runs along the coast or kept their ships laid up as one after another shut down. The stagnation of trade gave everyone, from Mr. Rowe and his fellow merchants like the young Mr. John Hancock, dining as elegantly as ever at the Royal Coffee House, to the meanest porter and the cheapest alehouse, a leisure to talk they had never enjoyed before. Boston went off into a talking jag that did not end until Lexington. That would be the shot heard around the world. Why was there no money to be made on the fine ships, which for a hundred years had been bringing wealth to Boston? Why was there no work for a willing, able-bodied man? Who was to blame? England's efforts to enforce her navigation acts had upset long-established trade habits, but she had not as yet actually collected enough money over here to pay her customs officials. It seemed to have been the general opinion from the top of the social ladder to the bottom that England was to blame. The overexpansion of the last 40 years probably had as much to do with it as England, but it was the meddlesome tyrant from overseas that was the scapegoat. King George III was popular. Their enemy was Parliament. Grenville, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, looked about for some other form of taxation that could actually produce the money. Controlling smuggling over so long a coast 3,000 miles away was proving expensive, impractical, and extremely unpopular. After talking with the colonial agents in London and asking for alternative suggestions, he put the Stamp Act through Parliament. I am not, however, he said, set upon this tax. If the Americans dislike it and prefer any other method, I shall be content, provided the money must be raised. As soon as the Stamp Act went into effect, which it never did, every legal document, every newspaper or commercial paper would need a stamp, costing from a half penny to 20 shillings would require very few officers to enforce and no breaking and entering of private property. As Grenville argued, it would fall fairly equally on all colonies and classes. 
But it was technically an internal tax, not an external, like a customs duties. And its theory frightened the colonists. Whether or not England had the legal right to tax these colonies in any way she pleased does not seem to be settled yet. Probably she had, but it was the utmost folly to do so. This distinction, this is a quote, this distinction between internal and external taxes seems to be the inquirer today, as it did to so many in that day, almost a quibble. One should be universally accepted through generations, and the other start men to their feet shouting, liberty of death has never been satisfactorily explained. Paul Revere and the world he lived in. You're listening to Tom Hartman. How do we stop the next generation from dying younger than the generations that preceded them? You've got the millennials, Generation Z coming up, and we have, over the last three years, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it coincides literally with the election of Donald Trump, but over the last three years, we have seen death rates in the United States go up and, and uh, life expectancy rates go down. This is not happening in any other developed country in the world. Big report in this week's Journal of the American Medical Association about this, and the shocking part about it is it's not old folks who are dying young. You know, if you're over 65, the rate of death is pretty much where it was, you know, a decade ago. The major group that is dying young are people between the ages of 25 and 64. There are 35 causes of this. The principal ones are the so-called diseases of despair, suicide, alcohol, and drug overdose. But in addition to that, we're having an explosion of diabetes, an explosion of autoimmune disorders, an explosion of obesity and high blood pressure. And these are the diseases of poverty. These are the diseases of you know, people not being able to afford to eat well or living in food deserts. And this all ties back to this explosion in inequality in income, inequality in resources, inequality in wealth, and it's producing now inequality in health. And by the way, the states where most of this is happening are red states. Paul Krugman has a great piece in the New York Times. It's called America's Red State Death Trip. He says just 20 years ago, in 2000, in the census of 2000, the life expectancy in democratic areas in blue states and life expectancy in red states was the same. The same for blue and red counties. It was pretty much the same. Now, 20 years later, red counties are experiencing an explosion of deaths. And blue states and counties are staying right where they were. So blue states doing just fine. In fact, life expectancy is actually going up in most blue states. Red states, life expectancy is plummeting. Obesity is higher. Diabetes is higher. Heart disease is higher. I got to tell you what Bill Barr thinks about this after the break, and then I'll take your calls. Stick around. Honest to God, Bill Barr, the attorney general, has an absolutely insane theory for why this is happening. I'll tell you all about it in just a minute. So I just laid out how people are dying younger in red states. Actually, life expectancy in the United States in blue states or blue counties, you could do it either way, is continuing to expand. People are living longer. But overall for the United States, life expectancy for the last three years has actually been going down. Why? Because in red states, people are dying much faster. 
and they're dying from a whole variety of causes. And, you know, there's a pretty broad consensus that this has to do with massive income inequality in the red states. You're very rich and a lot of poverty. And the failure or the unwillingness of red state governors, Republican governors, to expand Medicaid. So you've got more people who don't have health insurance, don't have access to health care, and thus more people die. But Bill Barr, our brilliant attorney general and fundamentalist Catholic, gave a speech at one of the Catholic universities a week or three ago in which he said that he noted that the, the societal trends that, you know, people are dying younger and there's more suicides and more drug addiction and things like that. He noted the stuff that I was just talking about. And he explained it by using the exact same rationale that you'll recall Al and Tipper Gore were talking about in the 1990s. Bill Clinton didn't talk so much about family values after he got busted, you know, with Monica. But, you know, Tipper Gore was running around wanting to ban music lyrics. Remember that? And before that, you had, you know, Reagan, you know, with Bill Bennett, his little book of virtues guy who was his education secretary. Bill Bennett saying, well, you know, it's all caused by the collapse of the family. Now, when Bill Bennett said it was the collapse of the family, what he was really talking about was black people in poverty. And I'll share with you, uh, you know, Bill Bennett essentially talking about that. Here he is. But I, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. That would be an impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible thing to do. But your crime rate would go down. I mean, this is how they thought back, you know, in the, this was the 1980s during Ronald Reagan's presidency. That was his secretary of education, Bill Bennett, saying this and, you know, and basically saying, you know, it's this moral failing. Well, then they got a little more sophisticated about it. And in the 90s, the, the conservative take on why people were dying was that it was marriage was falling apart. And... That's what Bill Barr said this week. He said it's, it's because, well, actually, he didn't, even, he didn't even say that. He, he went back to, you know, one of the Reagan talking points and basically, you know, kind of Al Gore's, which was, and I don't mean to trash Al Gore, what he's doing now, you know, in climate is just absolutely, you know, we should all applaud. He's become a national hero. But you know, there was a time there. And a lot of people bought that, you know, that line that, you know, our culture is collapsing. So Bill Barr says it's because we're not religious enough. We have, of course, he was speaking at a Catholic university, but he's, you know, basically he's saying that it's the secularist, militant secularists, was the phrase he used, assault on traditional values. Oh, my God. Gay people are getting married. People are not showing up in church. People are not declaring themselves to be religious. Uh, you know, uh, people are living not in wedlock. All of these things, according to Bill Barr, our current attorney general, are the reason why people are dying younger in red states. Which makes absolutely no sense. Because those secularists that Bill Barr is saying are the cause of the problem are largely centered in the blue states. You've got fanatical adherence to religion in red states, much higher rates of church attendance in red states, you know, much greater oppression 
of gay and trans and, you know, the whole spectrum of people in red states. Much greater tolerance in blue states. You've got more racial heterogeneity in blue states. I mean, Bill Barr couldn't have been more upside down in his logic. And Paul Krugman points out, you can even do this internationally. He says, in Sweden, traditional marriage is clearly in a decline. The young adults there are more likely than Americans to be living with a partner, less likely to be married. But society doesn't seem to be collapsing. The Swedes are one-sixth as likely as Americans to attend a religious service. Again, Paul Krugman writes, society doesn't seem to be collapsing. So let's just do away with this nonsense, huh? It's not about, you know, as Bill Bennett, as the Reagan administration was saying back in the 80s, you know, all of our problems were being caused by poor black people in the inner city, in quotes. It's not as, as was argued in the 90s by Republicans and by the Clinton administration that it's moral failures. It's not what is being argued right now by Bill Barr and the Trump administration that we're not embracing religion. The thing that's killing us is the destruction of the social safety net. In red states where death rates are so much higher are also those places. In fact, the highest death rates in the United States right now, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and I believe it was West Virginia. I don't have the list in front of me, but it was, it was, it was four states that, um, Pennsylvania may have some Democrats, but four states that are basically red states. They accounted for a third of the excess deaths that are skewing our nation's statistics. And then you get into the southern states and, you know, the same thing. So the destruction of the social safety net, it's that people don't have access to good education because we still fund our schools based on property tax, something that goes back to the days when, when white people didn't want black people to have a good education. And so they said the local community will fund education. It's pure racism driving that. You don't have expansion of Medicaid. Again, that goes back. You go back to the 60s and look at the debates around Medicare and Medicaid, particularly Medicaid, and the white segregationist southern senators were the ones who fought that, tooth and nail. Why? Because it would provide health care to poor black people. You know, racism is at the core of these problems that Republicans just keep perpetuating. It's the exact opposite of what Bennett and Reagan were saying. It's not black people, it's the way they're treated. It's not poor people, it's the folks who are making them poor who are causing these problems. It's not minorities, gender minorities, racial minorities, religious minorities. It's not that, it's the people who are demonizing minorities. And religion is not the answer. We know that from, you know, you can look all around the world. The least religious countries have the highest standard of living and the best quality of life and the longest life expectancies. I mean, this, this is not rocket science. Anyway, well, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Rodney in Washington, D.C., listening on Pacifica Radio. Hey, Rodney, what's up? Hey, well, I'll tell you what, guy. <laughs> I was so happy when I heard your voice. I said, this is Tom Hartman on PFW, you know, Pacifica. And sure enough, it was. Oh, that's great. So I used to watch your show like a hawk when you were on RT two, three years back, and then they yanked it you know, from uh, OTA TV around here. And I left them. Well, thank you. I'm glad you like the show and, and glad you can hear it. You, you want to speak to the topics of the day? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, yeah, just to say uh, one more time, you're the bomb, man. And so, uh, 
you know, I've got several things to say here. Well, I'll start with the last topic you just made as far as social safety nets. Uh, I believe even as far back as the 60s, it was posited that there were more poor whites per capita than there were blacks. Now, I don't know if that statistic has changed or not, but... Uh, In absolute numbers, there are. There are a lot more poor white people than black people, just simply because there's more white people than black people. But, right, okay, but I, yeah. But, well, you know, poverty relative to race is greater in the black community than in the white community oh, for, course, for a fairly obvious reason. You know, the white community has 400 years of social capital and wealth capital that it has, you know, I mean, you know, 40 generations or 20 generations that it's been building that capital, whereas the black community has been prevented from having access to that capital largely up until the 1960s. Right. Correct. Well, uh, what about all the infrastructure promises that have been made over the last two administrations? You know, uh, bridges, yeah. roads, tunnels, highways. You know, we, right. we've got a great need, greater need for that than we did in the 50s. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I would you. say that uh, before, I, before I forget this, I'm, I hate to wedge this in, but the music uh, segue and theme that you had on RT was in good taste, and I happen to be a musician, but okay. at any rate, if you could bring that back, it'd be great over the radio. I'm glad you, anyway. I'm glad you like it. Rodney, i got to move along, but thanks for the call. Peter in Lawton, Oklahoma. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you. It's an honor to be able to talk to you, sir. When I heard that the, they wanted to bring back pre-existing conditions, I just shuddered. 30 years ago, I had to make the decision for DNR on my wife for cancer that we were not aware of until we reached the emergency room from breast cancer. And she, of course, they delayed the chemo for six months, and then uh, it spread. Why did they and, delay uh, it? But, uh, well, she had went to the doctor four months prior because she had a lump on her breast. He ignored it and said, well, you need to lose weight. It's just a cyst. Don't worry about it. Whoa. That's and no then, practice. And then, uh, and, it, of course, yeah. I had uh, two sons, age 7 and 11 at the time. Yeah. And it wasn't for the union stepping in with the hospital bills, what the insurance didn't pay. I was, you know, they were calling my house, and the hospital uh, was. And so so you've been basically a victim of our yes, health insurance yes, industry. Twice. Yeah. Oh, and then man, five that's... years ago, I had to do the same thing for my cousin. He couldn't get the insurance. That's terrible, Peter. Peter, thanks a lot for the call. I mean, these, these are the kind of stories that illustrate why we're having this rise in death in the United States. It's, it's, and, and why we need to do something about it. We need to do something about it fast. Tom Hartman here with you. Stick around. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But all that has changed now thanks to this magic in a bottle, Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And the best part is 
It goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code HARTMAN. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code HARTMAN. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings, by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises. But he knew as well what Americans could accomplish, even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to 
become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey K. There are a few trends. I mean, this is kind of the noise that's around everything, but there are a few trends I think that we really need to be paying attention to right now uh, because we have seen this movie before. We saw this movie back in the 1920s and 1930s. We are facing a couple of things that are, you know, almost direct repeats of this. Uh, first of all, we're seeing the rise of a new and brutal form of governance with extraordinary industrial capacity and power. And this is China. The last time we saw this, you know, the rise of an industrial power that was also essentially fascistic was Nazi Germany, the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s in Germany, in Europe. And, of course, that went on to cause World War II, in part. We're seeing the exhaustion of monetary policies. In the United States, we have interest rates that are just a little over 1%. In Europe, some, in some cases, they're even below zero. And in and of itself, you know, if you just look at that in a, in a little cube and say, oh, interesting, look at that. It doesn't seem to be all that meaningful, but if you look at it in the larger context, which is that the principal way that governments can stimulate an economy 
when the economy goes in the tank because of the cycle, the cyclical nature of capitalism, when, when an economy goes in the tank, the principal way that a government can stimulate it out of recession or depression is by lowering interest rates. And the last time our government was using low interest rates to solve a problem like this, it was the Great Depression. Interest rates went down to close to zero. And, but they're close to zero now. And yet we're having an expanding economy and an expanding and an increasing stock market. So the problem here with that is that if there is a financial crisis and, you know, or, or even just a downturn, there's no way to use monetary policy, to use interest rates to get us out of that. The other tool, the other weapon, by the way, that central banks have is pouring money into the economy by buying bonds out of the marketplace and injecting that money into the economy as a whole thereby. And we've been doing that for 10 years. It's called, it was called QE, quantitative easing. They're not calling it that anymore, but they're doing the same thing, and they had to start doing it on an emergency basis with the repo market a few months ago. So at the same time that we're seeing the rise of China invoking the possibility of the Thucydides trap, this the, the Greek philosopher who pointed out that war is most likely to happen when an established power, we have a unipolar world, the United States basically ruled the world, from the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s to now where China's economy is going to be larger than ours any day now, might be already. And their middle class is now three times the size of ours. So that's a Thucydides trap. That's a potential warp point. Another one of the four things that we need to be looking at is that inequality and poverty in the United States are back to levels that they were in the 1920s, during the Roaring Twenties, which led, again, straight to the stock market crash of 1929. Uh, the last time we saw this was 1929, this level of inequality. And then finally, we're seeing massive amounts of both government and corporate debt, and individual debt. And, you know, the reason for that is the low interest rates. It's, it's just very simple, right? When money is cheap, people buy it which is, or rent it, which is, you know, what you do when you borrow money, you're renting money. And if the cost to rent money is five, six, seven percent, you know, normal interest rates, or even three or four percent, if you're running a business and you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, I can use this money for one of two things, basically. I can borrow money and use it to increase the value of my stocks, or the price of my stocks. It doesn't increase the value. I can use it to increase the price of my stocks by buying shares back out of the marketplace and retiring them. And thus, you know, the number of shares in circulation goes down, so the price goes up. I could do that. Or I could take this money and I could invest it in new products or new services or expansion or R&D. In a world where interest rates are 3 4 5%, you have to know that your stock price is going to go up more than 6 or 7% in order to be able to pay back that debt. Or that the product you're going to produce is going to have to produce a profit of 6 or 7 or 8%. You know, it's got to be above the cost of borrowing money. But when you can borrow money for free, as in Europe, or when you can borrow money for 1%, as in the United States, you only have to show a 2% profit or a 3% profit, which is the riskier investment strategy. 
So companies have been, you know, I mean, they're literally buying back trillions of dollars worth of their own shares right now. And they're not investing this money in R&D because it's, you know, the, the fastest return on your investment is simply to buy the stock in your own company, at least from the point of view of the CEOs and all the senior executives who are principally paid with stock. Something that was illegal before the Reagan presidency, by the way, and should be again, because this paying executives with stock causes them to make decisions based on what's going to increase stock price, not what's best for the company or what's best for the economy or what's best for the community. It's called a perverse incentive. So as these variables all rush together, what we have right now are the seeds of a possible second Great Depression and Third World War. And to navigate times like this, we really need smart people in our political system. But because in the 1970s, the Supreme Court legalized political bribery and said billionaires and big corporations can own as many politicians as they want, no limits, all good. Instead, what we have are shills running our politics. I mean, just very simply. And idiots. I mean, you know. And yeah, the law is catching up with them here and there, but so I'm seeing all these things, all these mistakes that we're making that are virtual clones of what we did in the 1920s and early 1930s. And it's just jaw-dropping, basically. I mean, you know, the CEOs are basically running a Ponzi scheme, you know, with the share buybacks. And it's been going on for years now. Clearly, we need somebody in the White House who understands this stuff and who will put this genie back in the bottle before this, uh, you know, to torture the metaphor, before this genie blows up our country or our world. I mean, you know, there's some really very, very serious issues here. And I think we need to be taking them very seriously. But instead we have now, again, this, you know, here to extend it even further, you know, another, another trap, another problem, another danger area. Instead of having a media which explains to people what's going on, I mean, go back and read the New York Times in the 1930s. They laid out, you know, who, what the policies were, who the politicians were, what was going on. Now, well, yeah, the, the Times and the Post do a pretty good job of reporting the news. But most of the news, I mean, our local newspaper, USA Today, the, it obviously talk radio, people are getting very little news. They're getting human interest stories and they're getting wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Donald Trump, you know, and if it leads, it bleeds kind of stuff. But, you know, we're really not hearing what's going on. We used to have laws in place that guaranteed local ownership of media, radio, television, and newspapers, which led to a sense of responsibility on the part of the owners for their community. I mean, I get the newspaper that we get here in Oregon is owned by a company in New York. How crazy is that? So, you know, all of these are the result of, you know, we had this situation in the 20s. It crashed our economy and led to a world war. Franklin Roosevelt laid out the causes of the problem and fixed them with a whole bunch of things from, you know, the fairness doctrine to local ownership rules to the, to the way that the Fed would operate to restricting, making it illegal for corporations to pay their senior executives with stock. Just basic common sense regulations, separating investment banks, the Glass-Steagall Act, separating investment banks from checkbook banks, 
so that banks would not gamble with the money that you have in your savings account. And every single one of those things has been blown up, largely by Republicans, although in many cases with enthusiastic complicity from Democrats who are in some cases also, you know, because the Supreme Court legalized this in the 1970s, who are also taking big money from the big banks. And so they're voting to ban, to, you know, to blow up Glass-Steagall, for example. And so the question, I guess, is, you know, how do we stop this? Or will it take another crash to stop this? Arnold Toynbee is said to have said, you know, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. Well, the people who remember what it was like in the 1920s that created the Great Depression of the 1930s are pretty much all dead. Those who were adults in the 1920s are all dead. And so where are the voices? They're only coming from our historians and a few economists, like Paul Krugman. If you couldn't sleep because of an uncomfortable mattress, you'd buy a new one, right? So why do you keep sitting, sitting in that same uncomfortable office chair day after day? It's time for you to give yourself or a loved one a gift of comfort and productivity by upgrading to an X chair. With their patented dynamic variable lumbar support, they call it DVL, you'll, ex you'll appreciate the X chair's difference the very first time you sit down in one. Make an investment with a guaranteed return this year. Improve your comfort and your productivity with the world's finest office chair, the X chair. Your body and your bottom line will thank you. No pun intended. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X chair, T H O M.com. Or call 1 844 4X chair. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and get free X-Wheel blade casters. That's xchairtom.com, xchairthom.com. Mike in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Mike, what's up? Every state has at least three congressmen. Yes, two senators and one member of the House, yeah. Got it. A senator is a congressman. A representative is a congressman. Right. Although, okay. in popular vernacular, when you refer to somebody as a congressman or a congresswoman, you're referring to a member of the House of Representatives. The right. House and Senate in Congress represents Congress, you know, technically and classically. But the common language is to refer to members of the House of Representatives as Congress people and senators as senators. But well, what's your I point, Mike? Uh, or was okay, that so, anyways, point? one thing I was going to ask about. Okay, so Jim Jordan, he all the time, he likes to spread three lies. Two of them I can remember, I can't remember the third. He says that Trump won by the will of the people, which he didn't. He won by the will of the Electoral College, which we're the only country in the world has that. Correct. And then also he talks about those transcripts of the phone call. That transcript was an annotated it wasn't a true comment. Correct. In the hearings, he said it was a complete transcript and blah 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 Yeah, you're absolutely right. No, Jim Jordan and, and Devin Nunes are just lying through their teeth. I mean, I, it's just I a constant those, thing. I hate those two guys. I, <laughs> I get it. Okay, but, you know, let's not talk about hate, Mike. Thanks a lot for the call. Con in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Hey, Con, what's up? Hello, Tom. First time caller. Thank you. What's on your mind? <laughs> I've been trying to just understand these uh, Republicans and, and over the years and observation and starting from Reagan to today, what I see is these people 
they don't care about the country. They don't care about the people. These people, they only care about money and their position and having their place at the table. And, and they. Yeah, I agree. I just tweeted out an article about that just a few minutes ago. It's unbelievable to me how people continue to put these people in those positions, especially senators and, and yeah, and don't senators. underestimate the power of money. This is you know when the Supreme Court legalized corporate bribery in 1976 in the Buckley decision, and they said that individual billionaires can not only run for office and use their own money without any limits and without any restrictions. You see Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer for that matter, but also that if a very wealthy person, and then two years later in the First National Bank decision, if a very wealthy corporation owns an individual member of Congress to the point where they're constantly voting, you know purely the interest of that person. That's not bribery. That's First Amendment protected free speech. So, Khan, that's just the way it is. I, you know, I'm sorry. We, got, you know, we need to overturn those Supreme Court decisions. Brett in Seattle. Hey, Brett, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Well, first I want to thank you for being a lone voice of sanity on the airwaves. Thank you. But I'm not the only one. The there, there, there's a bunch of good voices of sanity out there, yeah. Yes. Yesterday at the end of your show, you were talking about that we've been in a civil war, for a cold civil war, but that it won't become a hot one if, after this election, if Trump stays in office or if he gets removed. Either way, I think there is a way that it could become a hot civil strife, would be a better word. And you're using the wrong model. It's not the American Civil War. It's something like Kosovo or Rwanda or Tulsa in 1921. It's neighbor against neighbor and neighborhood against neighborhood. Yeah. And this is very chilling. Yeah, probably Tulsa would be a better example because, you know, Rwanda was, well, that was also, a, you know, a race, a racial strife, I guess, tribal strife. Yeah, and, and I'm and hearing Kosovo a lot of was, the same rhetoric. Regional. I hear a lot of the same rhetoric coming from the right wing, calling people cockroaches and yep. dehumanizing people. Yeah, and that was led well, up. Well, and, and we're seeing that right now. I mean, you know, the guys who killed a bunch of people who were because they were Jewish and uh, killed the cop because mm -hmm. he was a cop. Uh, you know, the incredible rise in the killing of of Jews around the United States uh, and people of color by people who are and supporters of people who are of color like Heather Heyer, you know, mm -hmm. at, the, at the Charlottesville, Virginia rally. Yeah, there is yeah. A, a civil strife, I think is a better. You're right, Brett. I'm hopeful that now that the FBI is starting to take this seriously, and they really should have done this two decades ago, and they've stopped a number of mass shootings. I mean, it's about every other week we get a story about some guy that had a hit list of people he was going to kill, and it's not always kids in schools. And a bunch of guns and, and mom turned them in or neighbors turned them in or whatever. We're increasingly hearing about those kind of things. That's kind of the good news. I think that I really think that this is not going to stand very long. You know, what happened in Tulsa, you know, the slaughter of African-Americans in Tulsa back in the what was it? The 20s. It was a long time ago. 1921. Yeah. 1921. White people back then were more willing to turn a blind eye to things like the Klan. I mean, you know, just average white people, to things like the Klan. And the news media was more willing to turn a blind eye to it. I think those days are over. I hope those days are over. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brett. 
good Thank to hear you. from you. We'll see. You know, we'll see. But I think that the Cold War actually concerns me a lot because it's it's the oligarchs against everybody else. And now that the oligarchs own the Republican Party, that's why the Republican Party is not going to go with the Voting Rights Act because they don't want black people to vote. It's just that simple because black people, you know, about 70, 80 percent of them vote Democratic. And, you know, how dare they? Lewis in Chicago. Hey, Lewis, what's up? Hey, Tom. As listener show, and you're talking about China and how they're becoming, well, they are the second largest economy, and like you said, possibly the first by now. The only one to address that is my right now favorite president, disappointing Donald. He's the only one in the world that has ever talked about addressing the trade disparities. Well, actually, um, you know, Bernie Sanders China put that at the center of his presidential campaign four years ago. Sherrod Brown has been talking about it for decades. The Democratic Party, by yeah, and large, has been opposed to all these free it. trade That's deals. No, but here's the Nobody thing. Else has ever Lewis, I'm with you. You know, the one good thing I can say about Donald Trump is he has put trade front and center. God bless him. I'm glad he did it. The problem is... We have a trade policy in the United States since, and this started with Richard Nixon in 1974 with the, with the 1974 Trade Act that gave him fast track authority. And then Reagan doubled down on this in, in the early 80s. And then Clinton doubled down on it again in 93 with NAFTA, although NAFTA was negotiated by Reagan and Bush. These are Republican trade policies, this so-called free trade. And Donald Trump has been a Democrat his whole life. And the Democratic Party has been largely opposed to these free trade deals. They were even opposed to Clinton doing it. That's why, you know, Ross Perot came out and said and got one out of five votes in 92. Now, here's the here's the problem, Lewis. If you want a company that is currently running a factory in China to bring that factory back to the United States, you're asking them to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a new factory. They need to know that the tariffs that will protect their business when they move that factory back to the United States are going to be in place for at least a decade, probably two decades in order in order for them to be able to recoup that investment. Trump is not doing it that way. Trump is using a loophole, essentially, in our national security laws that give the president the ability to use tariffs for national security purposes. In other words, to say, you know, this, this particular company or product or whatever, you know, it's not good for the United States. We need to have strategic reserves or whatever it may be. Well, those tariffs will only last as long as he's president. And whoever comes in after him, you know, can walk away from them. That's why none of these companies have relocated their factories in America. In fact, manufacturing in the United States has actually declined during the last three years under the Trump administration. So, yeah, we're, you know, we're collecting, a, you know, a fair amount of money in tariffs. And, yes, American consumers are paying more for their goods. And, yes, some of these importing companies are a little less profitable. But they're not changing their behavior because Trump isn't doing it right because he doesn't know how to do these things right. He's not a particularly bright man. You know, I know Robert Lighthizer, his trade advisor, or he's been on our show a number of times. He's a good guy. He's smart. He gets it. And I think, frankly, this is probably the one area where Trump might be able to collaborate with the Democrats and get something done. The Republicans are totally opposed to what Trump is doing with tariffs. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag 
You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.